Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about 8-Bit Christmas, currently streaming on HBO Max, a holiday nostalgia tale reminiscent of a Christmas story, but set in the 80s and trading its Red Rider air rifle for a Nintendo entertainment system. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 77%, and the critics' consensus reads, for viewers seeking an undemanding and sweetly nostalgic ode to Yuletide season's past, 8-Bit Christmas boots up without a glitch. My guest today is Avery Poulis, costume designer for the film. Avery, you've pursued film work as a career since 2011, but you've actually been designing since 2007. We'll talk more about that. Other notable projects of yours have included 2019's Ready or Not, 2020's The Craft Legacy, and Peter Burke's upcoming limited series Painkiller, expected sometime in 2022. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here, Avery. Listeners, this is your spoiler warning. But first, Avery, as we like to do, talk to me about your history in the film business. What inspired you to start? It wasn't actually something I necessarily was really invested in pursuing. It was more by chance. I was working in fashion, and it was sort of during the recession in 2007, 2008, roughly, when everything was kind of crashing down and people weren't necessarily hiring people. But the film business kind of never seems to slow down. <laughs> I know what you mean. And I was working retail at the time, and there was a woman who was our, uh, did our alterations who was also a seamstress in film, and we sort of started talking, and she suggested I try film. I have My uncle is also a scenic painter, and he's like a 30-year IOTSE veteran, and so I kind of picked his brain about it a little bit. And, I, you know, I happened to know a couple of people within IOTSE. So I applied to be a permit within the union. And because I had so much fashion experience and I knew how to sew, I was accepted. And I had, I was super green. I had my first day on set and it was kind of love at first sight. I was like, this is the coolest. And, um, you know, fashion is so insular in terms of who you meet and who you work with. And the thing that I love about set was it I went to a performing arts high school where we had different majors and that was the first time I ever liked school and then being on a film set really reminded me of that environment of being around all these creative people with different abilities that were different from my own but we all came together to kind of create this one collective thing and so I sort of fell in love and then I ended up randomly as a daily on the show suits and then they liked me and so I turned into a weekly and then the weekly turned into being a permanent costume assistant and then that turned into doing stuff on set and then that turned into being a costume buyer and then that turned into working directly with Jolie the costume designer and working under her I realized I wanted to be a costume designer and then I was at a point where a lot of my friends actually from the high school I went to we're also working in the film industry as production designers, more into the commercial world and music videos. And so I reached out to them and I was like, hey, like I will do anything you need. Or if you hear of someone needing a stylist or a designer, I'll do it on the weekend. And so I was doing suits Monday to Friday, sometimes Saturdays. And then on the weekends, I was doing short films and music videos. That's interesting. So you really went up through the ladder on suits, got to see all the different aspects of how the wardrobe department is structured. But at the same time, you were pursuing new opportunities wherever you could, as far as packing your weekends with these additional works, the shorts and such. Yeah. And so what then was your transition to actually doing full-time costume design? 
a lot of people think that this stuff happens overnight because you'll get that one project that's a hit or and it's such a hustle. But when I first, first started, I had met this costume designer named Alex Kavanaugh. She actually ended up doing the breakdown for me, right or not. But she became a mentor for me and someone when I was working on suits and I didn't understand certain things. I'd like call her from the bathroom and be like, hey, Alex, what does this mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to mess this up. But Alex was teaching this course in Toronto that I took. And at the end of it, she was like, if anyone is a young costumer and needs more experience, like, let me know. And I was, I guess a bunch of people went up and talked to her and wanted to do it. And she was like, okay, email me. And I was one of the few people that actually followed through. So she trained me and I ended up doing a short, the short film with her doing set for her. And there was someone on set who was helping a friend named Stella McGee, who directed Jane of the Joneses, which was my first feature film. But we just like hit it off and became friends. And Stella had all of these incredibly written scripts that I found really inspiring. And there were certain skills that I hadn't quite honed when I was on suits, like how to do a proper, proper script breakdown. Like I knew how to do mood boards from working in fashion. And I actually think that's one of my strengths. Like I love, love, love doing my mood boards early on, but I, I didn't really know how to do them from a character standpoint. So I used Stella's scripts as sort of my blueprint for learning my craft as a costume designer. And I did mood boards for her, for her movies that didn't have financing that she could send out to potential investors or producers. And then Stella finally got her financing for Gina the Joneses, which premiered at South by Southwest. So I did that. But then, you know, when you're first designing or you're first trying to be a head of department, you'll get a job here or there. And then you have to go back to being like a costume buyer or an assistant designer. Some people work as stylists and do both, but I really do not like styling. I Once I understood what costume design was and you could create things off of a script and tell a story with clothes, there's nothing less interesting to me than styling. It does not do it for me. I also have friends who are stylists who I think are incredible at it. And I would much rather like recommend someone go see them than me. <laughs> so yeah, I, it was a battle to kind of break through. So I would, I was really lucky to, to find and meet people who were supportive, like Chris Hargadon, who designed Hannibal. I, I was his buyer on Hannibal. And then he also designed the Umbrella Academy. So Chris would hire me on projects even if he knew I would have to leave to do something because he really believed in me and supported me and I also under there's kind of a, a common knowledge in our department that often the best costume buyers are actually designers because they can put on the glasses of the costume designer they're working for and find the things that they know that that person would like and I had a shorthand with Chris. So it was kind of like, whenever you're available, I'll take you, I'll find space for you. So he was really instrumental for me in surviving, trying to be a costume designer because he would always hire me. And then when I had an interview or if I had to leave and give like a week or a couple of days notice, he'd be like, yeah, go do it. So I was really lucky in that regard, but it was a lot of stop and go, stop and go. There was one year, I think I had six interviews. I didn't get any of them. And then I had three films that I did get and they all went down. And so people don't understand or know that side of the industry where it's constant rejection and disappointment sometimes. You know, Avery, before we get too far, I want to ask you about mood boards, because I'm not sure I'm familiar with how that works in the wardrobe department. 
generally speaking, when I get approached for a project, if I haven't met the director before, I will get the script from my agent and then I will get a meeting set and then I'll have to do sort of a, a pitch deck, which I do in InDesign, Adobe InDesign. And it depends on how much time you have <laughs> before the interview, but I will generally do the top five characters. So I will find images online that I think are inspiring, items I think that character might wear. If it's period, I'll look at kind of historical imagery, catalogs from that time, depending on the working class of the person. I love Sears catalogs because it is such a great reference for what the generic public would have bought at that time. So I'll do mood boards and then you generally present to the director and have a conversation about the script when you first meet with them. And then if you get the job, you go away and you kind of adjust things based on their notes or ideas you come up with. And it becomes kind of your Bible for your department. It can often change many times over completely. Like if the director changes their mind or you know, you can plan all red for a character and then the actor gets cast and they hate red or look horrible in red. That's the thing. It's sort of your foundation, but it's never really 100% set in stone. So Avery, you started getting more of these uh, feature films. One that hopped out of me looking at your IMDb page was Ready or Not. Was that a breakthrough movie for you or did you not know what it was going to be when you were there on set? I had no idea what it was going to be, but it, that movie changed my life and my career 100%. It just opened up doors like crazy for me. People just did not get the script. And I actually, I recently had dinner with the directors and Chad, their producer, and we were talking about how people just did not understand the script. It seemed so campy and ridiculous, and it was going to be this like hokey, horrible film. And there was just something instinctually that I felt like I had to do the movie and I wanted to just I went into it with the goal of just enjoying the process of filmmaking and not caring about the end result I think that was the year that I had had so much rejection and disappointment and so I was kind of just like you got to let go of being invested in outcome and just enjoy the actual job that you like doing and I actually think that was the secret to the success on my end but yeah it it fully changed my life. It changed Radio Silence, the directors and producer, their collective. Like they just did the new Scream. It was a huge movie for all of us. And we, we share that as a bond, which I think is really special. So talk to me about joining the production of 8-Bit Christmas. How did that come about? I had just finished production on Sex Life, the Netflix series I designed earlier in, I guess, 2020, and then finished, I guess, earlier this year in 2021, uh, because of the pandemic. No, I finished it in 2020. With COVID, it feels like... <laughs> but anyways, I had just finished that project in December of 2020. And Jonathan Sadowski, who plays Devin on Sex Life, is also a producer and he facetimed me randomly i was like oh what is this sure whatever we were buddy buddy and he was like i'm producing a movie i remember like i don't know if you remember me talking about it because it had been um kind of in production before we shut down for sex life they were in pre-production as well and it came back up and their costume designer that they had was no longer available 
So anyways, who's like, you obviously have to interview with Michael Douse, the director, but I would love it if you did this because I think you're great. So that was like on the last day of filming Sex Life, I got that call. And then in rap on Sex Life, I interviewed with Mike and we hit it off. And next thing I knew, I was prepping 8-Bit. So talk to me about production. As I understand from what you've said, they did some prep, were interrupted for COVID, started back up. I know they filmed the movie in Toronto. How much prep did you have and how long was the shooting schedule? I think I had seven weeks of prep and I think it was a 35 or 40 shoot day schedule. It was like enough, but it wasn't crazy long. And the costume designer who was on previous to me had done some prep. So like Jake's jacket that had been designed, these spree boots she had sourced. So there were elements of it that she had kind of put her touch on. And I, when I went in, I, you know, we were in a pandemic and I don't really have an ego when it comes to stuff like that. So I, I said to Mike, the director, I was like, you know, her name's Leah Carson. And I said, Leah has designed these items and I don't know if you've had meetings about them or where, like what this is. And, you know, do you still want to use this? Because I don't, if you like this, like, I'm not gonna, I don't know redo things because I'm the designer and I feel holier than thou. So he's like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. I would like to use that. But it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of stuff. So I kept the integrity of what she had kind of done in some respects. And then I put my own touch on it. Like, you know, some of the the boys scouts patches, they designed maybe six of them, but I thought they needed to be brighter and different colors and she had picked the green color for the Boy Scouts, but she had different hats with them. And I changed, like, I didn't like the sash color and I didn't like the necktie color. There were certain things that she had sort of already sourced, but hadn't been executed. And then I stylistically, Mike and I felt aligned to do different things. So, but she had really only, I think, in terms of what I did, like she had worked a lot on Jake, the character Jake, but everyone else had not been cast yet. So their pre-production had been interrupted by COVID, but they hadn't done any actual filming yet. As you guys came back in, picked back up with pre-production and led into the shooting, but you guys are working under COVID conditions through this entire time. Give me a sense of what that was like and how it affected the work on the project. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, it sucked, the COVID (laughs) act. It was, experience in Toronto with COVID has not been a pleasant one, just with our government and lockdowns and no consistency. So. At that time, we went into a full lockdown where no stores were open. So what I did when we started, and I had just done a show, and we were one of the few people, Sex Life was the first show back in Toronto um, within IOTSI during COVID. So we had actually kind of created a bunch of the protocols and how to manage and deal with certain things. And so we went in knowing kind of what we were up against. But when you work with kids, you need often a multiple of three. So you need a hero item, which is like their main item. You need a backup item for the child because they will likely spill. And then in kids projects, you generally have a photo double because they can't work past a certain amount of time. We knew we were doing period and that we needed to have sort of a plethora of items. So we ordered from several stores that were making things that still looked 80s. And then my uh, assistant costume designer, Laura, and I ordered basically a store's worth of fabric. And we just made as much as we humanly could. 
which I loved because I love me. <laughs> but wow, that's got to be a ton of work. I think we made all of the kids' coats except for Connor Stump and obviously uh, Josh Degorski's stuff. But yeah, all the other kids. Now, were you able to meet with these kids or even you just did that under COVID protocols as well, but probably not as much as you would like. And then also in Toronto, we had a two-week quarantine. So the kids would get to Toronto and you had to quarantine for two weeks. So what we did was we safely had clothing items delivered to them. And then I would do Skype fittings with them or not Skype, Zoom. Skype is so, so <laughs> last year. Uh, we would do Zoom fittings and then their parents would take fitting photos of them and email them to me. And if I felt they fit them well or looked good, I would send them to Mike, the director. So it was not ideal, but we just, we made it work because that's, that's what you do in film in general. But yeah, it was not particularly enjoyable. The other aspect of this film that I think presents a particular challenge, you alluded to it, but that it's set in the eighties. Talk to me some about how you interacted with that decade and how that affected your design. There's a wonderful costume designer who's retired now named Delphine White, who's Canadian. And she's been really lovely to me. And I, I've been slowly buying part of her library. And so I acquired her 80s catalog. So I did a ton of research uh, using that and my beloved Sears catalog. And then, you know, we used rental houses here in Toronto. Um, and what we would do is, you know, I would find some items that I loved, but we obviously didn't have doubles on them. So we would find similar fabric and make it in a slightly different fabric, but still felt period accurate based on the original. And then there are actually some places in Los Angeles, I forget the name of it, but they sell dead stock kids clothing in multiples. So we found t-shirts and jeans and stuff like that, that were available. And so we, we just bought in bulk. And then Jake has those kangaroo shoes, which was actually, it was so frustrating getting those. I ended up finding the email address of like the president of kangaroo in Germany because we couldn't find any size anywhere. And one of my buyers ended up emailing her and then giving us the email. It was just like ridiculous, but I had to have the kangaroo shoes for the director. Like they had to be those ones. And we needed to find enough in them because the thing that you also deal with with kids is not only do you buy the three items, but I like to do an additional item in a size up because they always grow. So for Winslow, I bought three pairs of shoes, three different sizes of shoes, and he ended up growing through all of them by the end of the show. But we ended up finally getting those kangaroo shoes from Germany, but it was <laughs> a disaster getting them in COVID. Because also shipping took forever because you know, something like Wrangler jeans or Levi's 501s, like those have not changed. So I ordered basically a stock room worth of anything and everything I could find that was period accurate off the rack. So following up on the idea of finding specific articles of clothing, in this case of the shoes requested by the director, but talk to me about your general approach to designing the look for a specific character. Generally, it comes from the page because you'll get clues about who they are as a person, their interests, their demeanor. For instance, the character Jeff Farmer, he is a pathological liar and kind of schmarmy. And so I wanted him to have these like 
kind of and it's scripted that he's wearing a Fox Valley pub t-shirt. After I read that, I was like, oh, he should have like kind of ridiculous graphic tees. Like that's kind of his thing. There's a kid's birthday party in the movie where they're at a roller rink and he's wearing a tuxedo t-shirt. And I said to Mike, what do you think about the director? What do you think about a tuxedo t-shirt? And he was like, oh, those are in all my movies. And I was like, oh, perfect. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Didn't clock that even though I've seen your work, but uh, perfect. To me, I was like, oh, he would for sure show up in a tuxedo t-shirt because he's that kid. And then it really, for me, it always starts on the page. And then also you look at culturally what was really relevant at the time. Mikey Trotter, he's sort of the cool kid who's into Americana and the army. And so it was looking at specific types of camo from that time, certain prints that were interesting and a little different. And even he wears, um, he has Jordans in the movie, which you never really see, but I specifically picked black toe Jordans, which were actually banned by the NBA for the movie because I thought he would be like the cool kid that would have Jordans. So it's little details like that. And it's also what's period accurate, which can kind of throw a wrench into it at times, but it's part of the challenge that I love my job. Tell me about designing for the twins, Tammy and Teddy. Yeah, for sure. Like Tammy and Teddy their jackets are the same, their boots are the same. And I approached it as, okay, their mom has gone to probably Macy's or somewhere probably even cheaper. But I also wanted, I didn't want Tammy to feel too girly, but I also didn't want her to feel like she felt like she had to be one of the boys. Like what drives me crazy in certain parts of media is you see girls who are within a circle of boys and then they just look and dress like the boy and she's super smart in the film and so I wanted her to not be sort of you know hyper masculine to make her worthy of being amongst these other kids so it was important to me that she did feel a bit feminine within also dressing like Teddy and what we actually did and this was deliberate Mike and I in Teddy's costume changes if you actually watch the movie like all the way through, he actually copies what she wears. So, you know, she'll wear a polo shirt one day and he'll wear one the next day or she'll wear. So that was sort of how I approached it. He's, he's sort of not an individual by any means. Also in particular looks, I was curious about Jagorski. You briefly mentioned the jean vest earlier. Tell me more about that iconic piece of clothing that he's wearing and why that was appropriate for him. That was all Mike, the director. When we had our meeting, he's like, this is exactly what I want. I want like a Ramones bully metalhead character. And I think if I remember correctly, in the novel or in the script, he's scripted as wearing a band tee. I think we couldn't get the rights to the original tee that he was supposed to be in, but we got Slayer and Pantera. And so we just did a rotation of band tees with him and then this uniform. Because the thing about the project is also it's supposed to feel like a memory, right? Like this is Jake reliving his life to his daughter. And so for me, when I think a lot of it is probably because I'm a costume designer, but when I think of people, I think of like the jacket that I remember them wearing as a kid. And so I wanted this scary, literally larger than life bully to feel like a memory. And so he wears the same jeans, vest, leather jacket, different band tees, but the whole way through the movie. And then we 
you know, I hand drew, there's little sort of like drawings and illustrations on his vest, which I drew. And then you can kind of see these little ticks that he's drawn, like around the hem of the vest, which is, I thought it was how many kids he's beaten up. <laughs> but yeah, I loved that character. <laughs> Continuing with the individual characters, talk to me about Connor Stump, described as the weirdest kid in school. I love Connor Stump. He's my favorite character. <laughs> It's just so uh, ridiculous. Um, I wanted him to feel really like kind of hodgepodge and his clothing to not feel like it really fully made sense. Mike wanted him to have a recorder belt, which I loved, which we made it of a piece of shoelace. I love a sweater vest. So he wears sweater vests over t-shirts. And then he wears, I think 90% of the time, sweatpants with his sweater vest so I just wanted it to be a little odd and off and then his freaky freezy gloves were scripted they're the gloves that kind of change color with water or I guess snow and then I found his hat I think it was at Fall Raven that brand and um, it had a giant patch on it that I took off because I didn't like I wanted him to feel very 80 and his boots too. Like I wanted very 1980s elements, but then him to have very classic pieces, but it all feel very hodgepodge and not deliberate or intentional. So I'm also very curious about the clothes worn by the Keene family. We meet Timmy Keene Jr. at first when he's allowing the people into his house. Um, and then later his sister comes along and his father make appearances. Well, I wanted them to obviously feel wealthy, which is the silk pajamas. That Those were scripted, and so is the karate robe. The thing about the 1980s, which I really like, and, you know, the 80s gets a really bad rap, but there were a lot of great components to the 80s, like prep style, which is what I leaned into for the Keene family. So that very academic look and kind of hoity-toity feel, which is the polo shirts and the argyle and the penny loafers. So... I really leaned into that. And we we looked at Jennifer Gray and Molly Ringwald for Tiffany Keen, but ultimately we ended up with a very classic kind of costume for her. And then the parents, I wanted them to just feel so out of touch and ridiculous, which is where the fur came from. Yeah, just as out of touch and kind of untouchable. You know, we talk about creating these unique looks for characters. I'm curious about the importance of choosing the clothes for Neil Patrick Harris and his daughter that's going to be the framing sequence. In other words, we're going to see it over and over again, but it really can't punch the same kind of way, or does it? Like, What about the clothing in a framing sequence maybe is different than regular designing? I wanted Jake to have a bit of a, a reference to what he wore in the past. Like he wears a Henley in the future, and he wore a Henley when he was actually working on the treehouse with his dad. So it's kind of a, a time, but I wanted it to feel more grounded in like an actual color that he would wear. So gray, kind of boring, but Neil Patrick Harris also looked great in gray. Um, <laughs> and then for Annie, I just wanted her to feel super modern and kind of interesting in this, again, mix of some, like she wears Doc Martens and kind of utilitarian cargo pants. And then you have like a pink hat and a polka dot jacket. I wanted her to feel modern and there was such a gendered aspect to the disdain of the girl boots in the movie that to some would seem problematic, but to me, it was such a thing at the time and it would have been such like, that is the truth. 
that that boy would have been teased for them and would have felt offended. And she actually calls it out in the script and in the movie, which I loved that they did that because it, you know, they kind of turned it on its head. And so I thought for her, because she calls that out, it would be really great if we didn't make her feel too sort of one way or the other. And there's a mix there. So that was sort of my intention with her. And she has all these layers because we see her exterior and interior in, in different phases. And so I needed her outfit to kind of unfold in a really effortless way. You talked about the girl boots, those purple boots with flowers on them. Scripted item, obviously. But again, as the designer, you read it. Where is your effort then in actually making it a reality? So Mike, the director, was hell-bent on those boots. They had to have those boots. And Leia, the previous designer, had actually sourced those boots. But we had to reproduce them because we needed multiples for the kids. And there was no way we were going to find them. And Warner wasn't going to clear them because no one could get a hold of a spree until three weeks before camera. So then I had to build seven pairs of spree boots, like based off of the hero within three weeks in a lockdown. So I actually have a friend who's a shoemaker. So I called her pegging her. There's little patches on them and there's like a, a trim. So I had that completely reproduced in Los Angeles. And yeah, Mike was not going to take no for an answer on those boots. So I just had to figure it out. <laughs> and then of course the multiples, right? As you mentioned before for the kids, that's like an extra complication. Well, and then also like, Katie, the girl who also has those boots in the movie, she has those boots and she has multiples. So it was, yeah, we needed many. Now, what about the baseball team? It's a short bit where they're playing baseball, but uniforms have changed in the last 30 years as well, as far as what kids wear. They pulled those uniforms up in the schedule and I had to do them in a day, which was not great, the period. But my assistant designer, Laura, managed to find a company that had the shirts and in the color we wanted that were the material that would have been accurate at the time, which I found so odd that anyone in today would want to buy, but I was very happy uh, that they did. And then I wanted the matching hats, but the beak of a baseball cap was much more narrow then. Um, and also just the shape, like the, the crown of the hat. And so we had a really challenging time finding that color. And finally, I found at Mark's Work Warehouse, which is a store in Toronto that's kind of, um, they sell like Carhartt and Levi's and kind of American workwear, like Dakota. They had white baseball caps that had a patch on them, but they were the, the kind of polyester foam trucker caps that were such a thing at the time. And so we ended up ripping the labels off of the front and then I hand painted them all. And then we had the logo laser cut in vinyl and iron them on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a time making that team, but I actually love the way they turned out. Now, you talked about your uh, influence on the patches of the Ranger Scout uniforms. There's a lot of them. You have both, not just the kids, but the adults as well. I mean, that's a lot of work that goes in on that. Yeah, they added about 20 the day before. <laughs> and luckily, we weirdly had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I loved doing that. the Loyal Ranger Scouts. I had such a fun time with that. And it came down to thinking about the characters and what badges Farmer would have earned versus Jake or what Trotter would have earned versus Olsen and their interests. And so 
we kind of designed all of the patches based on that. Now, if you're doing a Christmas movie, there's going to be at least one Santa suit somewhere in the film. Oh, I have a very boring answer to that. We rented those from a rental house in Toronto. <laughs> so Santa suits could come generic. Just make yeah. sure they fit the person that's going to be in them. Well, and also we want for the script. It was you know they're supposed to be cheap mall Santas, right? So I wanted to design them and have them, you know. But I actually the elves I designed head to toe. We made their shoes and everything, which I loved loved doing. That's a good segue into some specific scenes. So let's talk with the mall where we've got the Santas and also adult elves. It was interesting being in a mall when we were in a lockdown and people weren't allowed to be in malls anymore. So that was kind of hilarious. Yeah, it was interesting and dressing a ton of people and kind of a trip to be in a world of 1980s. And so working background in the mall, you're not doing a Zoom fitting with each of them. Maybe under COVID, you guys are doing it maybe a little thinner than than the normal scene of that size, but there's still a lot of people in there. There was compiling that they did, if I remember correctly, but no, um, I my background coordinator, Claire Levesque, is incredible and she did a great job. So I think um, there were, we did a lot of background fittings, but then on the day we would dress people, head to toe, pretty much everyone. So other scenes that struck me as um, peculiarly 80, I'm thinking of all those kids in the schoolyard that that would be a huge challenge as well. Yeah, well, and just kids in general, like keeping their attention span to try on clothes. It's the last thing they want. <laughs> They're like a kid like me who loved clothes, but that's very rare. So <laughs> Claire uh, and then also Ming Wong, who worked with her, they were angels <laughs> for dealing with that. Uh, what about the roller rink? That was fun. That was a fun day. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty simple. A lot of actually the people at the roller rink were people who roller skate regularly. I feel like if you're into that kind of level of nostalgia, you tend to aesthetically veer towards retro-y kind of clothing. So a lot of them came dressed in straight up 80s clothing. It was pretty impressive. Now, I was also struck by the costumes on Christmas morning where the family's all in PJs. I built both of those PJs for the kids. Um, so Lizzie, I designed, I those are two of my, I just love those costumes. And then the parents, I felt like they would not have Christmassy pajamas, but they would buy them for the kids. So, and the little kind of nighty that Kathy Doyle wears, I just like loved. And she loved it too. That was actually new off the rack from a store in Toronto, which I was like, oh, people still want to wear this. That's interesting. But she loved it too. And it, it for June Diane, like this was such a love letter to her mom. And so I think she really felt it. So that was good. That's always a nice feeling when the actor really feels it. That was one of her favorite items too. However, you've had a lot of favorite or close favorite costumes, but what from this movie haven't we talked about? Lacey dog. The Chinese crested dog's surgical gown is my favorite. <laughs> love that. So the dog is in a surgical crown. Tell me about how that came together. We had to do a still photo shoot with the dog and I had to do tailor measurements of the dog. I did illustrations of the dog in the gown for the director to approve. It was like a whole dog and pony show, literally. <laughs> and yeah, we even made it in one fabric and Mike asked for it to be made in another. It was like, it was intense, but I loved it. I mean, how often do you get to make 
a costume like that for a dog. It's so ridiculous. But yeah, that, that's my favorite costume in the whole movie. <laughs> now we talk about these individual costumes and all these little details, but of course your work has to integrate with the work of all these other creative people. How do you think the movie came together? I think it looks good. It, it, you know, it was tricky because I, I've found with COVID, you get a little bit fragmented with the HODs that you usually work with so closely. You know, everything was on Zoom calls and my office was in a separate building. And the last project I did was actually the first time I've been in person with a production designer and VOP since COVID, which felt like such a weird luxury. But um, I think it looked good. I have a shorthand with Andrew Stern, the production designer, because we've worked together before. We did Ready or Not together. And Sammy, it was my first time working with him, but it was pretty straightforward. And Mike was very specific about what he wanted, the director. So yeah, I think it all works nicely. So what's next for you, Avery? I'm taking a, a little bit of a hiatus. I have some stuff I'm kind of talking about for the new year, like probably in the second quarter, but I haven't had time off in over a year and a half, which I think is a luxury to have a job in COVID. But it also, you know, not in a pandemic, the film industry is such a challenge to work in and you get so sort of exhausted after a production, but then you add the weight of the pandemic and I'm taking some time to kind of reevaluate my goals and the types of projects I want to design. But there, there are some things that I'm in talks to do, but I can't talk about yet. Well, I imagine you'll be back on the circuit when Painkiller comes out, although I don't think they've set an actual release date for that yet. No, I don't, I don't think they have. And yeah, I think that project I'm really proud of. I did over 700 costumes <laughs> in different time periods. So, and I think the story is going to resonate with a lot of people. So I hope it does well. And yeah, I really want to watch it. I think it'll be really well done. Well, Avery, enjoy your time off in the meantime. I hope to get you back on the show in the future. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, that's a wrap on Season 9. The wait for Season 10 will be short, however. No episode next week on account of the holidays, but new episodes will quickly follow in the new year. You can also peruse the back catalog at the website, below the line, oneword.biz. That's B-I-C. Most of our material is evergreen. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline.biz. If you're still on Facebook, we are too. You can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, your support this season has been much appreciated. Tell your friends. As I mentioned before, we will be back again in the new year.